Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. We're back with a second helping of John Finnemore. Let's go back to sketches then. Um, and I, I, I often find I do read a lot of sketches for people, and uh, people often have a very good first idea what if such and such. Um, but the thing that where, where sketches nearly always fall down is is then the, the, the second twist. Yeah. Um, that to, to get out of the sketch and and, and out you know to get to the punchline and out of the sketch. And um, that that's what um, impresses me because that. Uh, uh, as well, writing myself, writing sketches, I always find that that is so hard. It's, it's great that anyone can that's have the ideas. And, exactly, that is what makes it a sketch. There's the premise, and then there's the the second idea, and it doesn't have to be a. a it can be a twist in the straightforward, you know, unexpected punchline way, but it, more often it's it's a second angle on it. It's uh, um, that should really be kicking in before the end of the first page, or you don't have a sketch, as you say. You've just got a sequence of jokes about uh, on on one premise. And oh, do, yeah. do, do, uh, what is, so in terms of your, your process, do you not even start writing a sketch until you know what that second angle or that punchline is? Or do you sometimes just start writing it and hope that something will tumble oh, out? More, no, no, more and more the first. And um, for these days, almost entirely with sketches, I wouldn't try writing it until I knew what the sketch was and where it was going. And I try to, you know, the, the more I can do that with uh, narrative as well. Sometimes I've got a little less strict with myself lately. I, there is room, as long as you've got time, for, for, for writing before you know exactly what's happening, just to, just to get the characters' voices. Mm -hmm. But I would not do that expecting any of that stuff to go into the, the mm. final double act, for instance. Right. I would just write it to go, well, hang on, I just need to get a voice in my head, so yeah. let me write a scene which is not, as I say, intended to go into this to find out who these yeah. people are. Yeah. But I wouldn't otherwise write dialogue until I know the plot, because mm. it, you can get, then you get, lost in in because then you'll start writing stuff that you enjoy there'll be mm. jokes and character moments that you really like and then it will become a crossword puzzle of trying to keep all of those in even when you begin to realize mm. no that whole second bit's got to go right but i love the bit about the rabbit so can we get the rabbit back into the first and you end up contorting the rabbit into the first act and nobody wants a first act full of contorted rabbits <laughs> <laughs> that's a scientific fact yeah it? absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no it is it is a sometimes we can when we're being quite prescriptive I certainly am about talking about planning, and it feels like you also are a planner. When you, the downside of that is you're slightly par paralysed. That the first time you start writing it, you're writing Act One, Scene One, as it were, and you, oh, you, you, you immediately have to get get going on it, and actually be fine about having your characters just talk nonsense for five pages. Whatever you do, don't don't broadcast that or even necessarily record yeah. it. And you realise that the show starts on page five. Yeah, you yeah. Don't need any oh, of that yeah. Stuff. But now you can hear them oh, talking. There's, yeah, there's loads mm. of. I'm not saying I yeah. wait until it's all planned out and no. then I write every golden word following in an unbroken sure. chain of brilliance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what other others may say, I don't say that to myself. <laughs> no, I do. Like everyone else, I do endless rewriting, yeah. and the first draft is utter garbage, and I know it will be. Mm. And it, it's you know um, that's the point of it is simply yeah. to. To fill something with words, but but to fill what with words? To fill the shape that you worked out in your mm. little book, and then once you've got the big old ungainly um, you know sack of words mm. in that vague shape, then you can go you know you can go back to the book and replot and go oh no well this is that was the funny bit and this mm. as you say almost inevitably the first six pages can go I've, I've rarely seen a first mm. draft where the first six pages couldn't go, mm. um, so. Yeah, you then go back and forth between them. Mm. But the longer you wait before you start dialogue, I think the easier you make life in the future. 
Yes, no, that's true. Um, that's I'm sure that's that's totally true for me. So you've got um, uh, you, you, you're doing the, the the sketch show and you've got the double acts. Presumably, you're doing another series of uh, double acts. Or am I? I'm just uh, enjoying contradicting you. No, I, we we probably <laughs> we probably are, but we don't have. Um, uh, right. that, that was an assumption. Yeah. That yeah. wasn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. tell you that you are. Doing <laughs> <that>. <laughs> <laughs> I clawed my way back into this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, uh, that that um, <laughs> that that therefore makes the question null and void. Um, but uh, <laughs> you, you, I mean, you, have have you been getting like do you have one series on a year, or do you get two? Have been having like two series. It's been two for a while. Um, I've Twelve been doing episodes of uh, com- six hours of comedy. Yeah. has been appearing yeah. on the radio. But that's year. my year's work, and that is quite a lot. But mm. it is. But I work really hard at it, mm. um, and. Yeah, for a while now it's been a series of Cabin Pressure and a series of Souvenir Programme and then Double X took over from Cabin Pressure. Um, and I do other jobs around them, but those are the, those are the yeah. The and including a tour. So you're, you're starting to do a tour. Well, yeah, that's a, a new thing. Um, we're doing a tour. Uh, so it's me and the Souvenir Programme cast, all uh, four of them. Um, Laurie Lewin, Margaret Caborn Smith, Carrie Quinlan and Simon Kane and I are doing 13 dates between, uh, 14 dates now, between uh, the middle of May and the middle of June. Uh, so yes, come and see us. I've never done that before. Uh, I've done. We did a live stage show in London uh, two years ago, and that was great. And we're, again, I just discovered. Oh yes, I really enjoy this. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. This is the sort of thing I like. And this is going to be a bit more ambitious and mm. you know more cast, excited, bigger scale. Excited, Very excited. Yes, yeah, so writing yeah. it at the moment. And so, uh, so the, well, it's not a repeat of the previous no, show, no, no. live show. It's brand new show. No, brand new show. There'll be some. Um, you know, there'll be some sketches from Souvenir Programme in it, mm. but lots. Of, uh, the more I come up with ideas, mm. the more I realise quite a lot of it will be, will be new stuff. Yeah. It's sort of weird, though, isn't it? Because um, in a way, you, you might feel like you, you don't want to do stuff that they might have already heard on the radio, except people sort of love hearing yeah. their favourite sketches from the radio as well. Yeah, and I really don't know what the balance is in comedy, because in music, I think people... I don't know much about music, but my sense from uh, is that people actually want it to be 80% old stuff and mm. then, okay, do a couple of your new ones at the end if you must. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Comedy, it's not that, is it? But I'm not certain that it would be, oh, we'd rather have 90% new stuff and then throw in an old favourite, if you yeah, like. Yeah. Um, I think it's somewhere in between and I don't, I don't quite know where. Yeah. There's also no comedy equivalent of doing covers. You know what I mean? There's no kind of like... Oh, that would be great if we could do the, the Great Train Robbery or... Um... Well, even just sort of <laughs> having, a, having a stand-up comedian just sort of do the Eddie Izzard, you know, uh, pants in the wash sketch yeah, and yeah. like that yeah. and just sort of like go, that's not a thing. That's well, it used to be, you know, that used to be what, in this country certainly, that was what stand-up was. It was, well, we all have these jokes in common. It's whether, but when Ken Todd tells it, it's a different from when... Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Frankie... Who am I thinking of? Frankie uh, Howard? Northern, no, um, although him too, but Northern Irish comedian Frank oh, Carson. Oh, Frank Carson. Uh, you yeah. know, they yeah. were told that, okay, well, we're all going we're to do the parrot joke, but yeah. it's the yeah. way I tell them. As when yeah, yeah, when yeah. they're on the bill together, they yeah. all they, they yeah, yeah. divvy they'll, out they'll, the, yeah. the jokes. And so I, I'm, I'm doing the parrot As story, I hope you yeah. can tell, I don't mean this in any derogatory mm. way yeah, at yeah. all. Yeah. I think that's, and the audiences would have known the jokes and would be looking forward to the punchline, and it was the journey on the way, which is what I think Ronnie Corbett was trying to recapture with his In the Chair monologues, that they were a creaky old jokes as well but he would you know tell jokes on the way yes and jokes about the producer in the canteen and Mm. stuff yes i actually now you say that i happen to be what i'm writing a book about um comedy and offense and i ended up watching some jim davidson on youtube um, and some fairly early jim davidson um in particular his chalky white character um which i have to say 
the voice is astonishing, and I think that is why initially people found it funny, bar, bar the basic sort of implicit racism, is the fact that somebody like that does this extraordinary West Indian voice is quite something. And he told this little you story. You mean it's good? I've not heard it. Well, no, you it's can a, actually do the accent. Oh, it's incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, okay. it's you really. Do it on it's, telly yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I'm yeah. sort of old enough to remember him mm. doing that on television, and, and oh, that yeah. was it was fine back then. Um, but um, I mean, it probably wasn't. <laughs> but it, what, James. Well, <laughs> I say it really. Read, read the book, and I will tell you whether it was fine. Oh, okay. Well, that's a cliffhanger for yes, us. Exactly. <laughs> but I, but the, the thing that sort of slightly offended me more than anything else was at the end. He told this little story about his mate Chalky, and at the end there was a joke where I just thought, "Oh, that's a Jethro joke. You've nicked a joke. Oh, that, that's wrong. That's <laughs> awful." And I just thought, "Oh, I think I'm getting offended by the wrong thing here." Uh, so, uh, um, our listeners and viewers here, and assembled several, should mm. think about a question that they would like to ask. Um, and I might even rove around and capture their question oh, on my phone. That would be exciting. Um, assuming yeah. it is actually recording, which it is. Yeah. So do, why don't you ask one more question? Uh, yeah, And okay. I'll stand up and start to... That's do you want to a hand idea. up if you're going to... I was, uh, I, I was thinking because... Uh, and, and you're going to be touring with, with these guys. And I know, uh, I know Carrie writes, and I know Laurie and uh, Margaret are both very good at um, yeah, improvising and things. And, and, uh, but... Uh, Obviously, you you write, and the the, the, script, the script is everything. But um, do you ever work up sketches, and will you be doing working up sketches with them? For yeah, the live absolutely. Show? We do a um, we, we now do a, a, a day uh, during the writing of every series, which we call Silly Voices Day, uh, <laughs> where we all get together, and it is mostly just. Uh, there's quite a lot of literal silly voices in it. There's quite a lot of uh, because I I think it started about series two or three when I was worried that it was all because it was me writing you know alone in my room and writing for radio it was all a bit in my head and I was sort of not not doing the, the radio equivalent of visual comedy as it were the silliness the, the you know the uh, silly voices so yeah. we started uh, pardon me meeting, and so many of the sketches came out of uh, that there's one about uh, pirates who can't uh, pirate skulls who uh, can't say the word pirate because <laughs> when you haven't got any licks, there's one letter you can't say, and that letter is, I'm the letter the biggest pirate. And that entirely came out of us just trying to talk for ages with our lips peeled as far away back from our teeth as we could to see what, what it sounded like. Or the uh, basking sharks, that was simply the basking sharks, gang of uh, upper class sharks who work hard, but they bask hard. <laughs> and that, again, just came from speaking with a fixed smile on your face and making your mouth as wide as it can, and it's the noise that comes out. Marvellous. So, yeah, there's plenty of that. Right, great. <laughs> just general showing off in front of each other, basically. Well, just mucking about, playing, and they yeah. trying to make each other laugh. Um, yeah, and then I steal all their best jokes and don't give them a credit. What <laughs> <laughs> um, why don't you say your name and what your question is? Uh, I'm Lawrence. I was just wondering, the last episode of the latest series of Souvenir Programme, mm. all of the sketches tied together at the end in some magical way. I was just wondering if that, to what extent those sketches were written to tie in and whether you had sketches where you had to add details to make that work. Uh, yes, I did it all those different ways, which I think, I hope... Uh, helped hide so uh, uh, as you say Lance, they, there's a uh, each episode of the souvenir program ends with a long sort of daft story um, which I tell in a character as a sort of MR James ghost storyteller and uh, this one incorporated characters and elements from the previous sketches and so I um, 
when I came up with that idea, I'd already generated, I had a certain bank of sketches I was working on, um, and I could see ways in which some of them could be brought in, and then there are others where I thought, okay, well, if I want to, I need them to get a fingerprint. Well, I've got that sketch where somebody's given a penguin and then it's taken back, so what if the penguin was a piranha fish in a bowl, then they could get the fingerprint. So there was some that were fitted in like that, and then there were others which were, right, I need a sketch. I, I, I've got to get to the point where a cake in the shape of a hat is a thing that's been mentioned before. <laughs> so how can I think of a sketch that will hopefully in a, you know, in a way that seems like it's earned its place on its own end with a cake in the shape, or uh, suggest the possibility of a cake in the shape of a hat. So yeah, both, both ends, <laughs> working against the middle. Uh, great. Say your name and what's your question? Hello, uh, my name's Jake. My question was going to be that one, but, <laughs> but, but I've got... I can answer one. it again if you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm like, you've done both sitcoms, you've done, done both ongoing sitcoms and now one-off plays as well. Um, like, uh, what do you think's harder? Do you think it's harder, harder to write for someone with a journey in mind or, or someone who's kind of like going to be stuck in the same place forever? Uh, they were both hard in different ways. I think um, the limitation of a sitcom, especially if you've done a couple of series, is um, trying to keep it fresh, trying to come up with new things that are going to uh, massively occupy your character's attention uh, for one week and then not be important enough that they ever talk about them ever again. Uh, and that's easy for the first series or so. And then you start to, well, hang on, we've done that, we've done that. And that's when sitcoms start. I mean, in America, it takes, you know, 50 rather than five. But still, at a certain point, you get, and I did this too, you get, okay, well, let's meet their family. Let's see what his brother's like. Let's see what her mum's like, that kind of thing. You can see when sitcom writers are looking around going, well, um, <laughs> what else is there to do in this police precinct, for instance? You know, only so many things actually happen in that room. Uh, so it was nice to be able to, to, to start anywhere and come up with anyone. But of course, that's also the problem. You can start anywhere. You can start with you can come up with anyone. So you've got to, you've um, you've got to narrow it down from anything that could ever be written, which is a slightly daunting task, I found. <laughs> Great. Um, next question was it you, sir? Yes. Yes. Hello, Chris. Um, you said you were at university when you decided that comedy would be um, a career th or mm. something that you might want to do. Why? What, what was it about then that made you think, rather than becoming an author or something else, was it you realised about your inspirations? Was it the people you were surrounded with? What, why did you decide to go at that it point? It was the people I was surrounded by, and the reason that I was surrounded by them is because the, there was a comedy club. There was a place where we could, where I could meet other people who liked comedy as much as I did, and where I could work with some of them and be rivals, you know, friendly rivals. But still, there's that sense of, oh well, we both started in the same place, but you're doing, oh, that's what you're doing now, and cross fertilize. And most crucially of all, we did a show every two weeks. It was only a little, you know, like a scratch. Uh, it's like a stand-up show, but you could do character or sketch or whatever. But everyone just did their one thing and got off, and. You so were you, were you kind of creating material yeah. every two weeks? Yeah, yeah, and right. uh, performing it myself, and yeah, um, and that was the, there's nothing like it to force, yeah. you know, the, the, the and you write so badly when you start. You write so much. Most people, if you're not Peter Cook, you write so much terrible stuff to begin with, and I wrote awful stuff for years. And you know, a, a situation like that, and you you know, a comedy club uh, is great, but you can do it on the open mic circuit as well. Any situation where you're churning that stuff out, but then trying it out in front of an audience, learning the hard way what, what works and what doesn't, seeing what other people are doing and, and wanting to 
do something like that or to work with them on something. Uh, there's nothing like it. So yeah, that and that, as I say, the uh, the, the um, feeling of okay, well, if there's six of us who would quite like to do this after university, we know we won't all make it, but at least it makes it a sensible ambition. It's not utterly ridiculous <laughs> thing to think. Next question. Hi, my name's John. At the risk of doing a Dave, I did hear somewhere that was 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 cabin pressure turned down by in-house BBC once, and if, if that's a complete lie, what was the commissioning process for it? Was it easy or difficult? Uh, everything I write uh, gets turned down at least once, usually twice. Uh, some things eventually, grudgingly, get taken on. Many things don't. So Cabin Fresh was turned down twice, once uh, in-house BBC, very nicely and, you know, no bad blood. They were perfectly within their rights, as it were, to look at my pilot script and go, yeah, we've got plenty, we don't want that. So I took it uh, to an independent production company, uh, Positive, uh, took it to David Tyler at Positive, and... Uh, because of the way the radio commissioning process works, you can in-house has a layer of a layer to go through before it gets to uh, the commissioner, which is where it fell down for me the first time. Whereas outside companies can go straight to that commissioner, so we were able to take it to her, uh, even though it had been turned down in-house because she it never got as far as her, um, and she liked it and uh, said yes, and we were delighted. And then her. Um, the level above her, the, the um, commissioner of Radio 4, who normally would never get involved in certainly the comedy department, uh, decided to, um, this was when he was going to send his thunderbolt down from Olympus and said, no, I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> so we got turned down again. And then it was only because David and uh, Caroline Raphael, who is the commissioner I mentioned, uh, very, um, you know, I'm very grateful to them that they both sort of went up to bat for it and said, are you sure? Because we really like this one. Uh, and and he, to his credit, uh, not to his credit, but I mean, uh, worthy of my gratitude, said, oh, well, okay, if you like it so much, you can put it on. <laughs> <laughs> did, um, did, did it change much from the first time it was turned down? Did you change it when you went to David Tyler with it? I, I, I'm sure I did. Yes, I did. But I would say it changed more between me writing it on my own and sending it to the first producer, who was Gareth Edwards in-house, and... It changed quite a lot. It was just massively too long and overcomplicated for a start. And it changed quite a lot then. And then, yes, it definitely changed more when I got David's notes on it. But I would say the bigger leap was the first one. Right. Question over here. Hi, I'm Katie. Um, in a couple of your sketches and uh, sitcom episodes, you've had some really great gags that have only worked because it's a radio medium. So like in Cabin Pressure, when you only see that uh, Douglas is playing cricket in his underwear when you have that revealed through the dialogue, and similarly in uh, Double Acts when you find out that the two brothers are in fact twins. Um, do you find that that aspect of writing for radio kind of liberates and makes room for a lot more jokes that you wouldn't get to do if you are writing for film or television? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and people often ask me if writing radio is difficult because I can't do visual jokes. But as you describe, I find radio is much better for doing visual jokes because you can reveal precisely the information you want to reveal at precisely the funniest moment and you don't have to have like the you know Douglas turning out to have Douglas and Carolyn have quite a serious conversation in which she uh, opens up a bit and reveals that she's you know constantly worried about losing her house to this awful airline and he grudgingly decides oh well in that case I'll do something to help you and then at the end of that we realize he's been having that conversation in his underwear and they're just both ignoring it uh, you know for good plot reasons it's not just a ha-ha pants joke but it's still you know you, you remember it's slightly that though isn't it yeah. Well, I hope not, because I, I don't like those jokes. I don't like that sort of, uh, in his pants, uh, sort of random stuff. And this wasn't. This was set up earlier that there was a cricket match 
they're on the Sarah, they're playing uh, cricket, and then there's a talk about who's going to be skins and so on. So we've got, and that's a that's another reveal you can do on radio particularly well. You can remind, not just reveal something for the first time, but also remind people of something that they already knew but have forgotten because they haven't been constantly, you know. Uh, so, for instance, there's um, an episode called A Skirty where uh, the character Martin has a series of uh, misadventures trying to get a stuffed sheep back to the rest of the gang. And when he, you know, and he trips in, well, he, when he arrives back at the airport, Douglas is able simply to describe all the things that we know have happened to him, that, oh, you're covered in goose dung, yes, I am, and, and you've got your, your handles all swollen up with bee stings, yes, it is. You're carrying a dead sheep, I notice, yes, I am. And none of these are surprises. We knew all this had happened, but we're maybe, we'd maybe not remember to put them all together into one <laughs> mental picture. So you get this sort of bonus laugh of us making a mental image of what he must look like to someone who doesn't know the journey. Um, and you can have the jokes along the way as well. So, I, yeah, I think it's terrific for that. And the, uh, the Goliath Window episode of Double Acts you mentioned, that was partly based on me trying to work out all the things I could only do on radio. So, as well, so you start with the two characters talking, then I reveal, well, it starts off at one of them's naked, uh, which you could do, obviously, on stage, but, you know, it would be difficult and you'd have to, there'd be other considerations. Whereas on radio, you can put it out at 6.30 and uh, just big naked sailor in the room. Uh, hello, I'm <laughs> posing for my photo and my portrait. Uh, that's all fine. And then you reveal that he's got one arm. Then later you reveal that, well, the, the reveal that the two of them are brothers, obviously, you could do on stage or any other medium, but not the reveal where it turns out at the end they were twins all along. Uh, and that's something that makes you go back and revisit the whole other, the, the rest of the play, in the knowledge that, oh, all that time you were talking about your face and my face, it's the same face. But you don't have to you don't have to try and hide that the way you would have to do on, on television or on stage. It can feel natural. I'm sure there was another thing as well in that episode that you could only do on radio, but I can't remember what it was. Um, hi, I'm James. Um, I'm just um, curious as to, do, if you have had a, a, a writing partner, or and, and if not, who do you use as a sounding board for your A idea? writing club? Partner. 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 Oh, partner. Um, I used to be in a double act uh, with a guy called Kevin who was... Very funny man, one of the funniest people I've ever met, sadly. Um, decided to become a teacher, you know, actually <laughs> give back to society or some such shit. Uh, so, um, yeah, I had a... And I've written with... Uh, I've, yeah, I've written with plenty of other people along the way, but, but never in uh, one sort of long-lasting uh, writing partnership. Um, but, yeah, I've got plenty of... All of the cast of Souvenir Programme, that chap, Kevin, lots of people who I would... Uh, who I would send stuff to and ask opinions about. And the producers as well. Um, uh, yeah. Um, any other questions from the, yes, one here. Hi, I'm Viv. Um, your song, your musical number is always a really great part of the, the episodes. Um, is that something you always plan to do, to include a musical number? And is it something you'd maybe want to do more of? In a the songs? Yeah. Um, no, it wasn't something I always planned to do. A lot of the stuff that I liked, a lot of the old school comedy that I liked growing up had a, a song in it, either a comedy song like, um, I'm sorry, I read that again, would always have one of the Lottie's songs, but also, or uh, Radioactive always had a song. Uh, also, you know, the goons around the horn would just have, an oh, the Frasier, who's for? We'll, we'll, play, we'll sing a horrible song about springtime. <laughs> or Max Geldre would play his, uh, what did he play? Trumpet. And, um, sorry? Harmonica. Harmonica, that's right. Um, so yeah, that was always that always felt like something you could do in a sketch show to me. But it wasn't something I I like writing lyrics. But it wasn't something I particularly intended to do. But we've tried to, in each series, 
um, try to find something new to do so that it doesn't feel too, without changing everything, so that it doesn't feel too familiar. So quite early on, we, we, we thought, oh, well, we'll try doing a couple of songs. And then it just seemed to work very well. I enjoyed doing them. Um, people seemed to like them. So now we put three or four in each series, but not in every episode. Um, thank you for questions. Um, we should round off very soon. I have mm. one question of my own, uh, a, a very specific question, um, partly based on the fact that the, the general question is, uh, my kids are 10 and 7, and they, uh, they've listened to every episode of Cabin Pressure probably uh, 8, 10, 12 times, because uh -huh. kids sort of do that. They yeah. just sort of put it on, and now they've memorised it. Um, and now they call their mother sometimes, Mummo. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> and, and when the first time I heard that, I remember thinking, what an incredibly weird thing that was to do and that you probably couldn't have come up with that, but you must have heard somebody once call their mother Mummo in a really weird... <laughs> but is that completely out of your head? I think so. Um, it's, so it's an oh, you're weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's meant to be a sort of... It's, a, it's a quite a kind of... He's not an out-and-out villain, but he's a, he's a big, grating, uncomfortable it's a character. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it just came out of, well, you know, that sort of hearty, rugger cricket thing of just yeah. uh, every nickname is simply, yeah. you know, your, a syllable of your first or surname followed by O. Oh, it's Tom O and Robbo yeah, and yeah. So, so I just thought that that sort of chat might call his mum Mummo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to differentiate her from all the other mums. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very pleased to have that one cleared up. It just sounded so weird. I just couldn't quite imagine it being invented. But damn you, Finnamore. You made it up. John, thank you. It's, it's, um, we are coming to the end of our time, I'm afraid, but uh, it's been a pleasure ha having you here. It's Love been a brilliant, be uh, brilliant um, talk, and um, looking forward to the uh, new sitcom that's not happening. And, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, and this whole TV sorry about show the, that you're doing, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie. I was yeah. very excited by all of the news you updated. <laughs> yeah. Um, I encourage you to talk to my agent, because <laughs> she needs to hear about these exciting <laughs> developments. <laughs> it's a matter of urgency. <laughs> from Cambridge Analytica. Oh, <laughs> that'll, that'll be, be it. it. Yes, <laughs> great. Yeah, we've got the topical jokes yeah. in. Or as, in fact, somebody uh, mentioned, and it would be more uh, true for, for John, actually, is uh, Ambridge Analytica yeah. is the uh, Radio <laughs> 4 version. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now all of our people here have seen that John Finnamore is everybody as nice as I said he was earlier. It's a very delightful <laughs> man. And so we are very grateful. And also, we, uh, Sitcom Geek presenters, are very grateful to you for coming to this live event. Um, and uh, also, especially to Patreon subscribers who have made it possible so that we can kind of get enough of a critical mass to actually make this sort of thing worthwhile and also help me buy these amazing microphones and this, and this Zoom H5. You got this. So you, you. you paid for <laughs> these things, and we will try to make the podcast louder uh, in the future, and I'll make this bit deafening on the podcast so that people yeah. will have to take their take their headphones out. But... Um, but I think we're done. Is that right? Yeah, yes. Well, uh, just to say thanks again to John Finnamore. Thank you. Yeah.